All right, let's make our way to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 this morning. As we continue our journey through the first letter that Paul writes to the church there in Corinth, as you guys make your way that direction, we're in the middle of this, or actually at the end of this section of Scripture in chapters 8 through 10, where Paul addresses specifically the question that was asked by the Corinthian leadership, uh, what are we to do with our liberties that we have in Christ? And so these liberties exist as we accept Him as our Lord and Savior. In fact, what Paul would say to them in chapter 7 as he's building up to this uh, section in chapters 8-10, through he says in chapter 7, verse 22, He who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. That we have this freedom that exists in Christ. We can exercise these Christian liberties. The question that they have is, uh, what do we do with it? How do we regulate it? For those that were coming from a Jewish background, uh, they had lived under the law, and so they knew all about rule and regulation. But those that are coming from a a Greek and Gentile background, they came where it was loosey-goosey. It was a letter rip. And so somewhere, their question is, how do we live in this newfound liberty that we have in Christ? And so Paul uh, addresses it specifically around the topic in chapter 8 of uh, meat being sacrificed to idols. That for those who were in Corinth, there were all these uh, pagan temples throughout the city and there were idols uh, that they would sacrifice meat to these pagan gods. And so the question for the church in Corinth was, what do we do with the meat that's then sold from these uh, pagan temples? I mean, this is the discount meat. Everybody loves a good deal. And so what do we do when the meat is at the Aldi's meat market for half price? I mean, can we purchase it and bring it home and feed it to our families? This is the issue. And what Paul says to them there in chapter 8 is, look, the idol is nothing. <laughs> that this is all the Lord's. That all this meat, all this provision, this is the, the Lord's. But he gives this caveat to it at the end of chapter 8. He says, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat again, lest I make my brother stumble. And so the point wasn't in what meat you eat, it's how does this affect those around me? Uh, Be careful that you don't, in exercising your liberties you have in Christ, accidentally stumble a brother or a sister. And so knowing that this is going to be difficult for them to understand, to have all this liberty and to have all this freedom and then to turn around and give it up, Paul uses an example in chapter 9. And he uses an example he knew well, he uses himself as the example. And what he proceeds to go through is that he being a pastor, being a minister to them, actually the one who planted the church in Corinth, he has certain rights that are given to him. And inside those rights, it includes, because he's provided for them spiritually, they are then uh, could give to him materially or physically. In other words, he could charge them for his services. This is what Paul is saying. I have a right to this as an apostle. And yet, in verse 15, he says, I have used none of these things. He has given up his rights. He's given up his liberty, nor have I written these things that it should be done so to me. It would be better for me to die than anyone should make my boasting void. So Paul says, it would be better for me to just check out of here and die than to take a paycheck for you because I know it's going to stumble you. He knew that the Corinthian church, while they were wealthy, they had many, many means, uh, they struggled with stinginess. And so what Paul wanted to make it clear to them is, look, I don't need your money. God's going to provide for me some way for certain. And in preaching this to you, what he says in verse 27, I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest that when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. What Paul said there was, I want to be a man of integrity. If I'm going to preach it to you, 
I'm going to live it out. If I'm going to encourage you to give up your liberties, I need to be willing to do the same myself. And so he was a man of great integrity who was not disqualified from the race. He didn't want to be disqualified because of his own hypocrisy. Now all this leads us to chapter 10. He makes the capstone statement. He's going to then go back to, he's going to, uh, to, to vary from his personal example, and he's now going to go back into the Old Testament Scriptures. So we're going to have a little Old Testament story time. You guys love that, and we dig through the book of Numbers a little bit. So he's going to give them these Old Testament examples to show them that there are these people who have had tremendous amounts of liberty they've been given. They've been freed and yet because they abused their liberties, because they, they didn't pay mindful attention to them, or because they took them for granted, they were in fact disqualified. Now as we wrap up our time this morning together, we're going to motor through 33 verses, but when we get to the end, we're going to see Paul give them practical ways that they can use to know if they're violating or they're abusing their Christian liberties. So Paul is going to put the practical in place to help us. And he begins, though, with Old Testament examples in chapter 10, verse 1. He says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. And so he's referring them now back to their Old Testament, back to the time period of the Exodus. And as Paul is, over these first several verses, going to go through these Old Testament stories, remember, this was a church made of Jew and Gentile, and many of which had just come to know Christ in the last couple of years. And yet he's going to assume they have a, a vast knowledge of their Old Testament. There was an expectation or a, an, an assumption that's made by Paul that they knew their scriptures, even though they were new in the faith. And so he goes back to the time where Israel's delivered from Egypt through the Red Sea miraculously. And as they come into the wilderness, God then gives them a cloud of protection all around the camp. That in the uh, in their encampment, they have a, a cloud uh, positioning system, CPS, given by the Lord right there. That as the cloud would move, so too would the nation move. And as the cloud would move, so would the shade that provided protection from the hot rays of the desert sun. And so the Lord's provision was one that uh, caused them to not go out and get a sunburn. And for us, often we ask, like, Lord, where would you have me go? What would you have me do? And I want to encourage you to pray, Lord, where's the shady spot at? He's not looking for you to go out and get yourself sunburnt or get yourself to skin cancers. He's looking to provide a cloud of covering. He wants to provide for us like a good father. And so this is what the nation was encouraged to do, to stay under the cloud, and God would guide them and direct them. He then proceeds to share with them that they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And so we see this deliverance through the Red Sea as the nation of Egypt was coming up behind them in hot pursuit. The, the land or the nation of Israel is delivered through the parting of the Red Sea miraculously. And what Paul says is this is a picture of baptism. What we know is Egypt is always a picture of sin and the world and in particular bondage. It's slavery. And so for the nation, they are literally delivered through the Red Sea, out of their bondage, out of their slavery of sin. And what happens then to Egypt is they are in hot pursuit. They are swallowed up. And the same is true as we see the picture of baptism play out, that the 
old man is left behind. The, the sin, the bondage of our past is swallowed up, never to be thought of or brought up ever again. It's completely consumed. And what we're delivered into is then the land of promise. We're delivered into freedom that we're supposed to have in this Christian life. And so this newfound freedom the nation of Israel now has, but as they're there in the wilderness, the question is, how are we going to provide? Where is the food going to come from? What are we supposed to do? And, and what you know is the Lord provided for them food. Bread from heaven, in fact. So every morning they would get up out of their tent. They go out and there's the dew on the ground, but it's actually manna. And, and how they respond is how your kids often respond to you when you deliver them something they've never seen before to eat. God gives them bread from heaven and they go, what is it? And so the Lord allowed them to call it manna, which in Hebrew means what is it? And so it's this inside joke they've got there for the children of Israel. God says, I provided you a heavenly graham cracker and you're questioning what it is. But this wonderful provision that not only did the Lord give them food that all they had to do was go out and collect, but then also as they cried out to him for water to drink, the Lord had Moses go and take his rod and strike the rock and water poured forth. Now as a kid, uh, the way that I would drink when I would get thirsty outside. Uh, we didn't come inside to use the restroom. Uh, we didn't ever wash our hands. And we drank straight out of the garden hose. And when we went swimming, we swam in the creek, which just so happened to be right downstream from where the septic tank drained out. So there's a reason why we never got sick as kids, because we're drinking out of the garden hose, swimming in poo water, right? And, and as I heard this story as a kid growing up, I thought this must have been what it was like. That even into adulthood, I thought the, the whole nation of Israel must have lined up and the Lord just gave them a garden hose, just one at a time. Everybody get a drink, get you some of this. But, but understand with me, there's two million people and there's flocks of sheep and goats and children and women. I mean, there, there are all these people that need a drink. They're thirsty. And so what we see is as the rock is struck, a river came out of that rock. It was enough to feed the entire nation, to water the entire nation and their animals. God's provision was not lacking in any way, shape, or form. And what Paul shares with them is the rock was Christ. That was Jesus and his promise of provision. In fact, what Jesus would say in John chapter 7, verse 38 is this, He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But what the abundant Christian life is to look like is we don't just get a, a slurp out of the garden hose every now and again and G Jesus keeps us half dehydrated, but He wants to give us torrents of living water. He wants to give us so much water that we can then turn around and give other people all around us a drink. Here's the water for you to drink from, to point back to Him. And so this is the promise that Paul is talking about to these Corinthians that the rock provided. Verse 5, But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. As God provided for them, what did the people do? But they complained. They complained over and over and over again. They complained about everything that they were experiencing. And then they looked back at their old life and they complained about how wonderful Egypt was. Oh, remember the leeks and the onions and the cucumbers and the melons and the fish. Oh, why'd you take us out of Egypt? It was so good back there. Completely forgetting all that they had to endure. They didn't remember the bricks they had to make with no straw 
and the beatings and the seven days a week and the working until they fell over and dropped dead. They didn't remember any of that. Instead, all they remembered was the supposed good things. And I love what H.A. Ironside said about the remembrance of the leeks and the onions. Do you notice all the things they remembered uh, caused heartburn? <laughs> I mean, isn't that amazing? Like we, we remember all these things, but we completely forget the after effects of what it was like to consume all the leeks and all the onions in our life. And here's the thing to understand about complaining. That when I complain, what I'm really saying is, God, what you've provided is not good enough for me. This is the root issue for the people in Corinth as well as those in Israel at that time, that they were complaining against the Lord because His provision was not good enough. And as we complain about His provision not being good enough, what happens is uh, it leads to no rest. There is no rest when we have to pursue and pursue and get more and work a little harder and get what's mine and get what's coming to me. And as we have no rest, what it also leads to eventually is death. For these men who complained against the Lord, their bodies, what Paul writes here, were scattered through the wilderness. That none of them got to enter into the abundant Christian life, which was a land of rest for them. God was going to go in and fight their battles for them. Instead, some 600,000 Men, their bodies were left all throughout the wilderness. And if you do the math on that, if there's 600,000 men over a 40-year period that they wondered, that adds up to 41 funerals a day. Can you imagine that? That this abundant Christian life that they were supposed to lead, it looked like death all around them. This is all due to their complaining. Now Paul continues, verse 6. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. What Paul's saying is, look, these are all examples for us that should lead us to realize what lusting provides. That as the nation of Israel, going back to Numbers chapter 11, as they complained to the Lord about the manna, we're sick and tired of manna, we're tired of heavenly graham crackers, what we need is a sandwich We need a little bit of meat to put in between the holy graham cracker. And so they cried out to the Lord. They desired meat to eat. And what the Lord did finally is He he allowed for them to be able to consume meat. He, He switched the direction of the wind and in Numbers 11, an entire flock of quail came all around the camp. And what we read in Numbers 11, verse 32 is this, And the people stayed up all that day and all night and all the next day And they gathered the quail. He who gathered the least gathered ten homers. I don't know how much that is. Sounds like a lot. They gathered ten homers and they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. Now, notice with me. God provided food for them. And all they had to do was, under the cloud of protection, walk outside their tent and pick it up. But as they complained, they now had to go outside the camp where the sun was shining, where it was hot, where they then had to work for their food. Not only work, but what we just read is all that day, all night, all the next day, they exhausted themselves trying to provide for themselves in a way that God didn't say was best. And so their their own lustful heart, it required them to go outside of the camp and outside of His protection and work themselves. And not only that, what the psalmist writes in Psalm 106, verse 13, he says, They soon forgot His works. They did not wait for His counsel, but lusted exceedingly in the wilderness. 
and tested God in the desert. And He gave them their request, but sent leanness into their souls. As their bellies were filled, their soul was emptied. You see, this is what lust always does. As we want more and more and more, what it does is it dries up our soul from within us. The job's never good enough. The house is never big enough. The truck is never nice enough. And as we have to pour in and work and work and work, what's the first thing to go? Sorry, Jesus. I got to check out. I don't, I don't have enough time. Leanness happens to our very souls. As we continue in verse 7, he says, And do not become idolaters, as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And now this is referring back to Moses there in Exodus 32 being up on Mount Sinai. If you're reading through the Bible study together plan, we were just here this last week. And so Moses is up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. He's receiving the law from God. And the people, after several days, maybe even weeks, they're like, yeah, he's probably toast. I mean, there's lightning and clouds and thundering, and there's no way he's surviving that. So they go to Aaron, his brother, and they're like, look, give us a God that we can worship. And so Aaron, being a, a, a little bit of a weenie, he says, okay, bring me all your gold. Bring me your earrings. Bring me your necklaces. And he, he crafts for them a, a golden calf. The same long-haired, uh, long-haired long-horned uh, golden calf that they would have worshipped back in Egypt. And he says to them, behold, Israel, here's your God. Now you can, now you can worship. And so they desired to worship God but they did it in a way that God didn't provide. That's important to note, that that God isn't looking for us to craft with our own hands the way in which we want to worship. His his desire for us is to worship Him in the right way, the way He provided, in spirit and in truth, not by a work of our own hands. And as Moses is up there on the mountain, the Lord tells him, hey, Mo, you better get down there. It's a mess. And so he, he motors his way down the mountain with the tablets that the Lord has written on with the law in his hands. And what he sees is them eating and drinking. And the word in the Hebrew, it's translated for us play, but I want you to understand what was happening is they were having a full-on orgy as Moses arrived down at the bottom of the mountain. It, it was a mess. And Moses throws the stone tablets down and breaks them. He grinds the golden calf idol up and grinds it into powder. And I love the interaction between Moses and Aaron because it's a lot like your kids answer you when you ask them a question. Moses says, what's going on? And, and, and Aaron's answer was, well, they brought me their gold and I put it in the fire and a calf popped out. Right? Isn't that the way the kids, I don't know what happened. A, a calf just popped out. But, but the issue is the first two commandments in the law were you to put no other gods before me. You're to make no graven images. They had broken the law before Moses ever even got the law delivered to them. And as a result, the the Levites went out from there and they struck down 3,000 men who had committed this sexual immorality who participated in this way. And so as the law was delivered, 3,000 men lost their life that day. Now, compare that to what it looks like to live by the Spirit. Acts chapter 2 is... Uh, the disciples gathered together in the upper room on that day of Pentecost and the Spirit is delivered. He comes down upon them and great flames of fire are above their head. What happens is Peter goes out from there. He preaches the Word of God powered by the Spirit and 3,000 people are saved. 
You see, there's no irony in this with numbers in the Lord. When the law is delivered, the law always brings about death. It always condemns us because we can't live by it. We can't abide by it. But the Spirit always brings about life. And so the encouragement here is to live not under the law, but to live in the freedom of the Spirit, but to also worship the Lord in the way that He's told us to worship. Paul continues, he says, Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. And so two different stories again from the book of Numbers, Numbers 25 and Numbers 21. The first one from Numbers 25 is they were there in the wilderness and, and they were around the area of Moab, the king of the Moabites. He, he went to a guy named Balaam, who's this weird kind of wizardy guy in the Old Testament. And he goes to Balaam and he says, I want you to come. I'm going to pay you money and I want you to curse the children of Israel. And so Balaam shows up and he tries his best four different times to curse the nation of Israel. And yet out of four times of Balaam, who's being powered by Satan, trying to curse the nation of Israel, all he could manage to do is bless them. Isn't that amazing? Whatever Satan tries to throw at us, to curse us, and to damn us, all he ends up doing is blessing us. We serve a mighty God. And so Balaam fails completely at being able to curse the nation of Israel, but he's got an idea. He goes to the king of Moab and he says, well, I can't curse them because they're protected by God. Here's my idea. What I know the Jewish men love is they love them some Moabite women. So march out the Moabite ladies, let them do the little dancey dance over in the corner outside the camp, and wouldn't you know it, the men, because of their own lust, because they did not appreciate what the Lord had provided for them, they went out and they committed sexual immorality with the Moabite women. So isn't it fascinating, while the enemy could not curse them, they managed to curse themselves because of their own lust. And so what Satan can't do to us, so often we end up doing to ourselves. Now, as we continue uh, along with these verses, he brings up the time where, because of their complaining, serpents actually came into the camp and destroyed them. And this goes back to Numbers 21. As they're complaining against the Lord and His provision yet again, uh, fiery serpents came out from all over the place, all around the camp, and it began to, they began to bite people, and they began to die. And I don't know about you, but um, I have a view on snakes that the only good snake is a dead snake. And so you can imagine, all these fiery serpents are now coming out all around, biting people, and they're losing their life. And so the Lord gives Moses a command. He tells him to craft a bronze serpent and to hang it on a pole, and to hold it up for the people, so that as they look upon the serpent, they might be saved. And you're like, what in the world? Like a bronze serpent on a pole? Like this makes no sense. And yet as the people looked upon the serpent, they were actually delivered from the bite of the snake. They did not lose their life. And as Jesus is sharing about this, He brings this all to our understanding in John chapter 3. As He's talking to Nicodemus, He says to him, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. This was all to be a picture of Jesus, who took upon us His the wrath that we actually deserved. He took that upon Himself. The medal of bronze is always a medal of wrath. And so 
Jesus takes on the wrath that we deserved, and as we look upon him, as we believe in him, we are saved. The bite of the serpent has no more power, no more effect on us any longer. And so the the reality is looking unto Jesus, this is the answer. This is what Paul is driving at. He continues here in verse uh, 10. He says, nor complain as some of them who complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. And so as we complain, as we as the, the nation complained, they were then destroyed out in the wilderness. Now you remember the story that as they were getting ready to make their way into the promised land, this was only an 11-day journey. And so after a year of hanging out there in the wilderness and getting all the plans for the tabernacle, they then made their way on the 11-day journey to the promised land, but they, they needed to verify that what God said was actually accurate. Right? I mean, God said it, but we better get ourselves some spies and just make sure God wasn't fibbing to us. He's only delivered us from Egypt, uh, brought us uh, through the Red Sea miraculously, uh, given us the law from a fiery mountain. I mean, surely uh, we can trust Him, but we want to send spies in anyway just to check on things. And so they send in 12 spies, and what the spies come back and report is, it's what the Lord said. I mean, this is a river, or this is a a land of milk and honey, tremendous provision. I mean, we got grapes the size of basketballs they're carrying. They didn't even play basketball, yet they had grapes that big. They brought them back to the people, but they said there's a problem. You see, there's giants. Great giants. I mean, these things are terrifying. There's no way. We're like grasshoppers in their sight. And so, as a result of them not believing God and just taking Him at His word that He would provide, Uh, They let fear take control and unbelief. Unbelief for all but two men. Two of those 12 spies, one a guy named Joshua, who we know an awful lot about because we can read his book there in the Old Testament, and another guy named Caleb. We don't know nearly as much about him, but I love what he says in Numbers chapter 14, verse 9, as it relates to these giants that were there in the land. He says in verse 9, Only do not rebel against the Lord, nor fear the people of the land, for they are our bread. Their protection has departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. What Caleb had to say about these giants is, yeah, they're giants, but the Lord is not protecting them. And to us, they're like bread. And so as we march on in there, let's eat us some bread. Caleb essentially says, I don't get it. I don't know how he's going to do it, but pass the butter, baby. I mean, let's get in there and get it after some giants. And you see, this is how we're called to live by faith. But we don't always understand. We don't always have the full picture. And even if we did, we probably wouldn't completely believe it. But we're just required to say, Lord, provide the bread. In fact, what, what Jesus said is as we pray, we pray, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. And how often do we pull up short, though, if we knew it was, Lord, give us this day our daily giant. And yet that's what the Lord is commending us to do. He's saying, Lord, he's saying to us, we should pray, Lord, give us the giant you want us to consume today. Give us the bread you want us to eat today. Lord, pass the butter, and I can't wait to see you work in my life. Now, Paul continues in verse 11 saying that all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the age have come. 
And so all these things, just as what we read in Romans chapter 15, verse 4, uh, we looked at this last week, that whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope, that all these Old Testament stories are here for us. They're here for us to study so that we can have hope, so that we can learn, not so that we can be condemned, but we can learn from their mistakes. We can learn from their victories. It's all here before us. He continues in verse 12 and says, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you such except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation also, will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. And so do not get a big head thinking you've got sin whipped. i got it behind me. No more sin for me. Uh, Paul saying, be careful lest you fall. Don't feel like you've got this thing in the bag. Because the reality is, if, if it's left up to me, oh, I'm, I'm a mess. I'm stumbling and fumbling and bumbling all over the place. And it doesn't matter what the sin is. We can look in the newspaper and go, I'd never do that. I'd never do that. i got to tell you, if I'm being really honest, uh, I look at that and go, but by the grace of God, there go I. I mean, I'm, I'm capable of all sorts of atrocities in my flesh. And that's the reality for us. And all of this is lost and all is without hope except for this. But God. Maybe the greatest phrase in the New Testament. But God. But He is faithful. As we lack faith, as we lack direction and clarity, God is faithful. He is faithful in the middle of these seasons. And we continue in verse 14, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. And so when you see this idolatry, here's what Paul recommends. Run, run, Forrest, run. Get out of there. Get out of that place and get away. Verse 15, I speak as to wise men. Judge for yourselves what I say. What Paul is saying to them is, look, we're not living by rules. We're living by reason. We serve a reasonable God, and so you're wise, and I want to encourage you, live reasonably. Verse 16, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread in which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? And so we have this connection between the spiritual and the physical. And what Paul's saying is we consume this and we have this communion with the body of Christ. The word communion in the Greek is koinonia. It means oneness, a coming together with Jesus, that as we participate in communion with Him, we become one with Him. We become a part of Him. In verse 17, he says, For we, though many, are of one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. And so there's this special connection that happens when we eat. When we eat physical food, there's a connection. If you invite someone over and you partake with them, what you're doing is, is experiencing this intimate relationship of I'm digesting and eating the same thing that you are. And so we have this shared experience. This is what Paul is getting at. And the same is true when we experience Jesus. When we partake of the bread of His Word, we are experiencing this with Him. And as we gather together and we open it up, 
Whether I did a good job of delivering it or not, the reality is we are consuming this together. There's an experience that happens, a, a oneness, a koinonia that's created through the consumption of the Word of God. Verse 18, Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifice partakers of the altar? And so his encouragement is to look back to Israel, back to the Old Testament, where they would take the peace offerings into the priest. And as the priest would offer there on the altar the peace offering, the Lord would consume a portion of it. God would typically consume the fatty parts. The Lord knew where the good stuff was at, ladies. He would eat the fatty parts. And as the Lord would consume the fat of the sacrifice, then the people who brought the sacrifice would also get a portion that they would consume too. You see, there was this idea of communion with the peace offering. Idea of oneness with the Lord. They were communing together with Him. Verse 19, what am I saying then? Thank you, Paul, for asking that. That an idol is anything, or what is offered to idols is anything. But rather, the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not God. And I don't want you to have fellowship with demons. And so Paul went through all this to say, as you partake with the Lord, you're in communion with Him. But if you partake in these demonic services, if you go to a pagan temple and you participate in any way, even if it doesn't mean anything to you, what you're doing is you're having communion with the demon. And and as we read that, automatically what comes to mind is, Paul, didn't you say that uh, these that these idols were really nothing. But what he says in verse 21 is, you cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. That as we eat or as we consume, whatever it is we consume through our eyes, through our ears, through our mouth, that as we consume, there's no way to partake of both the things of the devil and the things of the Lord. And so when you find yourself in that place and you thought it was all going to be okay, but yet, the devilish activity comes up, that's when it's time to exit because you're now partaking in the worship. You see, the point was the meat isn't the issue. The meat's not the issue at all. It's all the Lord's. The issue is the way that we worship and the who or the what that we're worshiping. Now, verse 22, or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? It's important to note that the Lord is jealous. We don't often associate that with uh, God or with Jesus, but here's the thing. He is jealous. Jealousy is different than envy. Envy means I want something that was not mine. That's covetousness as well. It's wanting something that didn't belong to me in the first place. But jealousy is wanting something back that I previously possessed. And this is this is God's uh God's desire for us is to have us back. There's a reason Jesus came and gave his life. It was to pay the price to buy us back. He wanted us back with him. And so this is what he is calling us to. Somebody's got a car alarm. We're going to ignore that. Get behind us. Satan. He's tearing up the fiddle. Now he's got the car alarm going off. We'll have none of it. Verse 23. All things are lawful for me but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. So the question isn't, can I go here? Can I go there? That's not the question at all. The question we should be asking is, 
Does this draw me closer in my relationship with Jesus or does me does it not? Because if it does not draw me closer to him, then it has the potential to pull me away from him. And that is exactly what Paul was saying is I don't want to disqualify myself. That as we make our way to heaven, that God's got rewards for us. The disqualification doesn't mean we don't get access to heaven. It means we might not be able to experience heaven to the degree that he wants us to. There are heavenly rewards, and and he doesn't want to be disqualified, and neither should we from that spot. Verse 24, Let no one seek his own, but each other the other's well-being. Now he's back to this idea that we are to look out for one another. We are to look out for our brothers and sisters in Christ. That while something might not stumble me, it might not trip me up, I need to be on the lookout for those who are next to me. Sometimes they live in my house. Sometimes I work with them. But either way, I'm connected to these people. And the encouragement there is to watch that what you're experiencing doesn't affect someone else in a negative way. He continues in verse 25, Eat whatever is sold in the market, asking no questions for the conscience' sake. For the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. A quote from Psalm 24. If anyone, if any of those who do not believe invite you to dinner and you desire to go, eat whatever is set before you, asking no question for the conscience' sake. But if anyone says to you, this was offered to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you and for the and for conscience' sake. For the earth is the Lord's and its fullness. Quoting again Psalm 24. And so, again, what Paul is sharing is the meat is not the issue. It's all the Lord's. The the earth and the fullness thereof, it it all belongs to Him. So if you go over to a non-believer's house, uh, do not ask what's in the meatloaf. Just uh, shut it and eat. Uh, Shut it and then open it. Don't ask a bunch of questions about what's in this, what's in that, but just enjoy it, partake with them, encourage them along the way. You might see them come to know Jesus. But if for some reason they offer up to you, they mention to you that this was offered to an idol, there is likely a reason they're mentioning that. There is likely some kind of a undertone that's taking place. They're looking to see what you will and what you will not do, or how you will and will not compromise yourself and your beliefs. And so the reason I believe that Paul quotes Psalm 24.1 in two different occasions is because he's trying to encourage us that if you walk away from a steak dinner, there will likely be another steak dinner. There will be another one that will come around. And we often get this in our mind that if I don't stay here, if I don't compromise, if I don't witness, if I don't share right now, I'll never get another opportunity. And what he's saying is, you'll get another opportunity. This isn't the the way the Lord wants it to be. Compromising is never the plan that God has in place for us because compromise always leads to corruption, which always leads to death every time. Verse 29. Conscience, I say, not your own, but that of the other. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? But if I partake with thanks, why am I evil? Why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I give thanks? And so the question is, as long as I give thanks, isn't that good enough? As long as I just say, thank you, Lord, please bless it, doesn't that make everything go okay? Why should I be judged evil by participating? He goes on here in verse 31 and through the end to answer this. Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 
Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men and all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. And so we have this tremendous liberty. We have been liberated in Christ Jesus. We can partake, we cannot, but the encouragement here is for us to run all the things that we want to experience in our life through this simple grid. First of all, can I thank the Lord in it? Can I thank the Lord in this spot that I'm in? Secondly, can I glorify God in it? Does it bring Him glory? Is He glorified in the way that I am participating or in the way that I am acting or what I'm involved in? And then lastly, will someone be tripped up by it? Will someone be tripped up by seeing me in this place, by seeing me act in this way? And if the answer to these questions are yes, and yes, and no, then I am well within my liberties to go for it. And this is such a simple way to look at these things when it comes to our Christian liberties, yet we make it so complicated. And the point to all this that Paul is trying to drive at is we ought to be more concerned about others than we are ourselves. That's really where the difficulty lies, is that I want what I want when I want it. But but the encouragement here is to be on the lookout for others to love others, to put them above ourselves and ahead of ourselves. And so, Father, I thank you and I praise you for liberty that we have in you. Lord, we have so much freedom. And yet in the midst of this freedom, one of the the most powerful ways that we can experience our liberty is to give it up for another, to lay down our life for another's life to give up the things that we think we might be owed or might deserve for someone else. Lord, help us to run the race in that way where we don't disqualify ourselves because we're stumbling people all along the way. Father, I thank you for being faithful even when I lack any and all faith. Father, please cleanse us from the inside out. Give us a, a correct perspective on the lives that we're leading. We lift all this up in Jesus' name. Amen.